This is the ACR 2022 topic panel. In this podcast, our panel will discuss their best abstracts on the topics they were covering at our meeting. Hope you enjoy. All right, I think we can get started. Good evening. This is evening time, I think, for many of us and morning for some of you. This is Leanne Gensler. I am a rheumatologist at UCSF in San Francisco, and I am here to moderate a very fun session as we wrap up from ACR Convergence 2022 with some outstanding reporters who have been at the meeting thinking about axial spondylarthritis, and we're going to talk about that today. So first, perhaps, um, let's just get started with introductions and I'm going to hand it over to Sheila first. Uh, Sheila, please introduce yourself and then hand it over to someone else on our panel today. Right. So um, good morning from where I am now. Um, I'm Sheila Reyes. I'm a rheumatologist from the Philippines, and I've been um, virtually reporting for Room Now. So I'll toss the coin to Akil. Oh, hi. My name is Akil. I'm a fellow at Stanford University. Um, and I was at ACR on site, and I'll pass it over to Cassie. Hey, good evening. My name is Cassie Sims. I am a rheumatologist at Duke University, and I was on site, but now I'm back in Durham, North Carolina, and I'm going to pass it off to Eric. Hi, Eric Dine from New Jersey. Just arrived back from uh, going back to my hometown of Philadelphia. Uh, so we'll finish it off with Anthony. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan. I'm a rheumatologist uh, from London, United Kingdom. Uh, attended the uh, ACR virtually. I'm glad to be here tonight. Wonderful. And so really, actually, we have such a diversity of people to talk about these abstracts, both regionally, um, but but also uh, some of us were virtual and some of us were on site. And so really getting a flavor of abstracts in all their forms. So as we think about axial spinal arthritis, it was an exciting meeting. There was lots out there. Perhaps I will ask uh, Sheila first to, to share with us an abstract that really um, hit home for you, something that uh, you were excited about hearing and, uh, and thoughts about how it will change your practice. All right, so I'll go ahead. Um, I chose, uh, I, was, I really was interested um, with abstract 1673. So this was, um, this was a study from the GRT GR2, sorry, GR2 cohort um, from a French population. And so it was it was an observational perspective, a multi-centric um, study, which looked into um, factors that were associated with time to conception. So they defined time to conception as the time when a woman started um, actively to conceive or to stop contraception. And then they also looked into um, the, propor the proportion of patients who were subfertile and to describe um, exposure to um, conventional DMARDs or biologics in the preconception period. So um, this was relatively a small sample size. It was only made up of 88 patients where um, the average age was around uh, early 30s. And um, so medium, medium time, median, median time to conception was around 16 months. And um, the disease duration of the patients that were included were usually um, the median of five years. So patients were on um, those in the preconceptional period, they were 
on NSAIDs, they were on um, TNF inhibitors, and some were also on corticosteroids. Mm -hmm. And what the, um, what the study showed was that women who were on NSAIDs were or had um, 2.6 times an increase or longer time to conception versus those who were not on NSAIDs. So um, uh, the, the, the issue there was, you know, for me, probably mm -hmm. my take, um, what, the reason why I also um, chose this, this abstract to share was, you know, it reinforces, although this, this is an observational study, and of course, we would hope that we get more robust data in the future, but this also reinforces um, the recommendations, conditional recommendations that the ACR had in 2020 about um, considering stopping NSAIDs preconception. And um, it also um, makes us reconsider our prescribing practices of NSAIDs um, to our female AXPA patients, particularly since these patients are in their reproductive age. So um, we should also consider on top of the probable side effects of um, our medications to our patients, but in terms of female patients, we also, we also should consider fertility issues. And particularly when they have difficulty conceiving, probably we really need to look into other factors such as medications. And one of them is NSAIDs. And, and tell me, Sheila, when you heard this presentation, you mentioned that actually some of the patients in this cohort were on biologics. So did they compare time to conception? Was it shorter if you were on a biologic compared to on an NSAID? Or was it just compared to no drug? Okay, um, they only compared it with the NSAIDs because they found that age and NSAIDs were um, negatively associated with the time to conception. So that was the significant um, result they had. Um, some of the other limitations also were that for NSAIDs, for example, they did not really um, go into like how long the NSAIDs how long the patients were taking the NSAIDs or the uh -huh. dose of the NSAIDs. Right. And um, yeah, so there were still other data lacking, but I think it's a, it's a really good point where we could, there, um, there could be future investigations in the area. And did they measure disease activity? Because I think that's always, you know, when you have observational studies with medications, how much of it is the drug versus the disease activity that the drug is controlling? Did they mention, did they measure that at all? Yeah, they did mention about um, the mean BASDI, um, their disease activity during preconception, it, and it was about 2.88. So that mm -hmm. was the result that um, they gave out. And I think um, just to add, uh, there were also, because I, I was able to um, interview the, the presenter of the abstract, and also it was also asked in the abstract session um, as to whether how the NSAIDs could have been um, causing the, the longer time to preconception or um, the subfertility. And mm -hmm. it's mainly because of its action on the prostaglandins, where prostaglandins um, also, uh, they can, uh, they are essential for both ovulation and embryo implantation. And we know that NSAIDs um, block prostaglandins, therefore they could affect, um, uh, uh, they could lead to anovulation and um, poor implantation. Yeah, I think that there's lots of important questions for us to ask here. Cassie, I know you're interested in uh, women's health too. What do you recommend to your patients? 
Yeah, so this is a really important topic because um, NSAIDs are such a commonly used medication. So I think the first point is that asking women about their pregnancy planning or fertility or personal goals is really important, especially because this is typically a younger population. And um, if, if we can limit the amount of NSAID use, it might prevent a more expensive and extensive workup for infertility. And we also don't want women trying for an entire year and not becoming pregnant. Um, and then it's simply just because she uses excessive amounts of NSAIDs and it's preventing her ovulation and preventing her from becoming pregnant. So the data shows that women with ankylosing spondylitis have relatively successful pregnancies. Um, TNF inhibitors are becoming a lot more comfortable using those during pregnancy and um, even uh, beyond sertilizumab, other types of TNF inhibitors. So we have options. Really the biggest issue we see is women um, who wanna have a vaginal birth. Sometimes positioning is difficult for women with AS because of either fusion or inflammation. Um, and so that's another thing we have to counsel patients on with physical therapy or working with our obstetrician. Um, but I definitely definitely think it's something worth asking. And, um, you know, Dr. Gensler, if a, if a woman wants to get pregnant and NSAIDs really seem to be the, pre the preventative issue, um, would you be more inclined to starting something like a TNF inhibitor if um, the disease was active enough? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think uh, that like if NSAIDs work to control the disease, I hate to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, but if it is pre preventing, you know, if, if, if fertility is being affected by it, then no question. I think it's an easy, you're NSAID sparing when you can get yeah. someone on a biologic. Um, I also, I try, I counsel my patients. It's not very romantic, but I, you know, I, I tell them to measure the LH surge. And really when it's around the, because you think about how short acting NSAIDs are, they're typically out of the system if you stop around the LH surge by the time implantation happens. And so I don't know, there's not a lot of evidence there, but there's mouse model data that suggests that, that it really does affect implantation um, as the, in terms of where in the pathway to fertility. But, but yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing is um, sometimes patients stop themselves, you know, and they would rather tolerate disease activity. Not that I think that's a great thing, but they would rather not be on anything. Uh, but I think what we're highlighting here is this is a shared decision and we really need to know the patients, what is the patient's agenda, you know, risk benefit, all of that stuff becomes different and important in the setting of thinking about pregnancy than I think when you just have a single patient thinking about themselves. Maybe um, I will, let's go on to, so Cassie, I know you had uh, you you had sort of a, an abstract that you were interested in sharing about an individual patient um, sharing their own story. So maybe I'll, I'll keep with you and go to you next. Yeah. So this is um, post, I guess it's abstract uh, PP25. And um, this is the view of a medical doctor who was diagnosed with ankylosing spondylitis during medical school. He was 22. And mm -hmm. when he initially received the diagnosis, he was in denial. And he turned to things like alternative medicine and physical therapy and exercise and orthotics. And he was started on a DMARD as well, but really had minimal relief from that medication. And um, um, he went on vacation and he actually had to put his studies on hold because he was in so he was bedridden because he was in so much pain and eventually found a doctor who understood his predicament and met him where he was at and helped him accept the diagnosis. And interestingly enough, he was put back on the exact same DMARD and did the exact same exercises and his pain drastically improved. It was almost like the mental acceptance of the diagnosis itself made such a huge physical difference. And, um, 
He uh, likes to practice Tai Chi and yoga and swimming and table tennis as well uh, when it comes to staying active. And his mantra is that on his good days, he doesn't like to overexert himself. And on bad days, he likes to strive to be as active as he can be. And so a lot of our patients, you know, they struggle with anxiety and depression and that worsens that their disease and it worsens their comorbidities and kind of bridging off of that um, abstract 0387 looked at poor sleep quality and patients with psoriatic arthritis. And um, this found that 63% of patients reported that their sleep, sleep quality was poor and that was associated with anxiety and depression. So all these factors are connected to each other. And I actually tweeted about this abstract on poor sleep quality and a woman with um, psoriatic arthritis commented and said, my doctors never ask me about this. All they ask me is how my disease is doing and if my medications are working. And I'm guilty of that. I mean, that's what we're interested in. We want to make sure their disease is well controlled, but patients may not think that their sleep quality or their happiness is relevant to their rheumatology visit if doctors don't initiate those conversations. And in, in this patient's case, this doctor with ankylosing spondylitis, I mean, his mindset when it was changed and improved, his disease got better and he became happier and more functional. So I think we need to, as physicians, ask patients about their mental health and their sleep quality because it plays a big role. And, and how well they function overall. I love that, that, that I feel like we are becoming more and more, as much as we have so many more tools in our toolbox from a pharmacologic standpoint, I'd like to believe that we're becoming more holistic about our approach to how we think about patient care um, and that it isn't just, you know, prescribing a uh, medication. You also said something that really hits home for me, and that's the, the, this patient physician that, uh, you know, the burden of disease, you know, we first see a patient in clinic, we have limited time, we want to help them feel better, we want to treat their inflammation in their disease. And then having that conversation, what does that mean? What does it mean to you to now have this chronic arthritis that you're going to deal with the rest of your life? And that burden is, is enormous. And so I love when there is time to acknowledge that, and, and really sort of have patient have that conversation with patients because I, I, we forget about that. I also you said you know the the sleep issue. I, I had this experience when I was on a um, Delphi exercise with a patient research partner, and and they asked the rheumatologists, "What do you care about for outcomes for patients?" And we care about disease activity. Mm -hmm. Patients don't care about disease activity. They care about pain. They care about you know fatigue. They care about sleep. And so I think really acknowledging what is it that's bothering the patient? Sure, those components feed into disease activity, but it's really the, the symptoms that are bothersome to the patients, not the composite of disease activity. Thank you for sharing that. Um, let's go to um, Akhil. Um, what did you find interesting at the meeting this year? Yeah, so it's going along the uh, components of, uh, you know, looking at the full picture, um, not just the disease activity, the specific um, rheumatologic condition, but um, abstract 1609, uh, I thought was very interesting. Um, it was a large um, population study using the uh, SOAS cohort. Uh, they looked at the impact of comorbidities on uh, disease, disease activity and functional status in patients with uh, ankylosing spondylitis. And I thought this was a really good study in that they looked at specifically how comorbidities affect these factors in patients with ankylosing spondylitis. And I thought the approach was really unique and really interesting in that they used a clustering approach to find a uh, presence and combination of certain comorbidities and how that, that, that interplays with, um, 
these activity measures, including BASDA and ASDAS, as well as functional impairment as well. And um, also looking at the other components, we look at swollen joints, tender joints, uh, enthesitis. And um, using this clustering approach, they found that there were five unique clusters. Um, one of the clusters was defined by the presence of uveitis. Another was defined by the presence of hypertension. And then another was defined by the presence of depression. And another was considered miscellaneous with a component of different um, comorbidities. And then the last was no comorbidities. And then the group that was no com comorbidities was used as a reference group. Um, and essentially what they found was that um, the group with depression had uh, significantly higher disease activity as measured by ASDAS, uh, BASDAI, as well as functional impairment. And then um, even um, when looking at the other clinical measures as well. And that this group really uh, stood out as having just overall poor disease activity and functional impairment. And um, I think this is a really interesting study um, and that it does pave the way for even more research, more investigation is that one is the presence of depression, but also looking at the quality of depression as well and seeing how that can um, uh, really impact um, the, 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 the measures that we look at is the activity and uh, functional status. And I think that does pave the way a lot. And then I think even, um, Going back to another presentation was um, when the, the uh, ASAS ULAR um, recommendations for management of EXPA. Um, one thing that really stood out to me was where they um, uh, mentioned that um, when the patient uh, fails to respond to treatment, one, consider alternative diagnosis, but two, also consider the presence of comorbidities. And I think this, this abstract really stood out in that sense and really does pave the way for future direction to really look at comorbidities and how it interplays with um, management of not just these activity, but just overall um, symptom control and symptom burden in patients with ankylosis and eczema. Yeah, no, I totally and and I was part of both of those um, studies, but I, including the guidelines. And I think that's so that's a new recommendation actually from ULAR um, to really consider whether there are other factors driving disease activity. So, what do you all do in your clinic, Anthony? What do you do in your clinic as you're thinking about patients and how their comorbidities? Do you measure depression with a PHQ nine or? Um, do you, you know, are you reviewing, asking a review of systems? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to um, to understand that it's not all about objective inflammatory uh, measurements. Uh, CRP and MRI have their place, but often if the uh, CRP and MRI, uh, you know, are very low or even normal, patients still uh, report pain and fatigue. And so we have to look at uh, factors such as the depression, uh, independent sleep function, um, the presence of fibromyalgia, because it may be that it's not a case of switching the biologic, but actually trying to deal with some of these issues through physical therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, and and the patient comes back feeling better, and we've saved them, a, you know, a switch to a another drug. Yeah, absolutely, Eric. What do you do? Yeah, I, I think um, you know, kind of coming back, merging that with what, what Cassie had said. Um, a, a separate session that I thought was really helpful in this was the was the 2022 guidelines on integrative and non-pharmacological uh, treatment, and, and that was for rheumatoid arthritis. But I think you'd be hard pressed to find something that doesn't apply to spondyloarthritis. That um, I, I think it's actually um, really useful that now you can point to all these things and say that there's actually guidelines behind it, um, even if some of it is, you know, expert opinion and not very much all that, you know, these things that may not be studied, but I think there's so much that goes into it and trying to tackle one or two things in a visit, because you can't go through the list of everything, but really actually spending a couple extra minutes to get to the, the bottom of, of what's driving these things. Yeah. I mean, I think these comorbidities are so intertwined, right? So like 
can you really say that the depression is driving the disease activity when certainly disease activity pain is going to drive some depression? So I think though we we are in a place and this, the guidelines follow this is like you treat the patient first, you treat their axial spondylarthritis, but then once you've done what you can and you believe that you've really treated the inflammation and you're still left with residual disease activity, thinking about these other things. For sleep, Cassie, you talked about sleep and psoriatic arthritis, but I, I find, I don't know how many of you refer for sleep studies or to sleep medicine. I find so much sleep apnea um, as the driver for fatigue uh, in, in our patients with spondylarthritis, especially that uh, again, it's this holistic approach. Great. Well, um, Eric, uh, what did you notice at the meeting this year that was exciting to you? Yeah, so I, I really enjoyed the Ignite talks. I thought they were um, a very interesting um, format of, of getting some of the posters out. Um, and um, I think I would have liked to see more posters in person, but I, I think it was great to be able to, to have these presentations and go through some of them. And so um, I, I enjoyed one of the talks by uh, Dr. Alexis Agdi, um, gave abstract 0402, which was on opioid use and healthcare utilization. Uh, and this was across um, psoriatic arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis. And, and what she found was, I think what wouldn't surprise a lot of us is that, you know, about a quarter of the patients, was 27% of patients with ankylosing spondylitis were on opioids and 21% and, uh, of psoriatic arthritis were on opioids. But she, she said in her presentation, actually, what, what my hypothesis would have been, that I would have thought these are patients that um, are using it as a Band-Aid instead of being on DMARDs and, and, um, and not using as much of the disease-modifying treatments because they're masking it with, with opioids. Uh, and what they found was actually the opposite and, and that there was no statistical difference and, and maybe even a trend that patients were um, who, who were op opioid users were actually accessing medical care more. Uh, they were seeing rheumatologists, they were having more medical visits, more medical tests, uh, more healthcare utilization and costs. Uh, and actually they, they were on uh, at least and often more, um, more disease modifying drugs than, than patients who were not on opioids. Um, the opioid users were, uh, I think not as surprisingly, they, they had more COVID, comorbid um, diseases, they were smokers uh, and they had worse disease. Um, but I think it is interesting as we, we think of it, you know, these, these patients with opioids, which of course really should not be used as treating the AS, um, you know, uh, as a disease modifying agent at all, because it's not, um, but they're not necessarily accessing it to replace it. It's that they're often a sicker group of patients that are having more struggles to, to get it under control. So I think it, it's just showing that when you see a patient um, who has such severe pain, it, it's um, something that should raise our flags and we really need to understand this group of patients more and, and understand what it is about them that's, that's driving them to be on these, you know, very harmful medications. Yeah, I mean, I think some other studies have shown in opioid users with axial spondylarthritis and AS specifically that there is less uh, biologic use. And if you look at claims data, like a fraction of AS patients are actually being prescribed biologics compared to other inflammatory arthritis. Um, I, I wonder, is this like a US problem? I, we, I, we're very lucky to have both Anthony, Anthony and Sheila here. Tell us, do you see the same problem in your countries? Okay, I'll go first, Leanne. Yeah. So, well, um, 
In terms of opioid um, prescriptions and giving of these medications to our patients, um, I don't really have the exact numbers, but um, I think it's safe to say that we do prescribe it less here in our in the in this part of the world um, in our country. And again, um, you know, with what Eric was saying about um, about the the results of the study, you you we always come back to the question of whether maybe these patients were not really treating what these patients have or um you know we look at other factors like um again the the comorbidities their inability to sleep and all those things and so um dr Augie gave a very good lecture on three to target strategies mm -hmm. and you know identifying the targets and i think um we really need to to talk to our patients as doctors so Going back to the opioid use, um, I couldn't really give enough data, but from from um, in general, from our practice, at least in my practice, I don't really give it much. Mm -hmm. um, if if there is any really any need, it's not particularly for the spondyloarthritis, but other um, comorbid conditions. Right. How yeah. about you, um, yeah, yeah. Our, our treatments for uh, axial spondyloarthritis has improved so much that uh, our use of analgesics have gone down yeah. uh, because we can now target and we treat them very early now with uh, biologics. And that has really uh, reduced the uh, op opiate use. Uh, and we feel that a lot of these patients, we actually were masking their symptoms for many years by taking opiates and they end up having very stiff and sort of damaged spines. So we have completely changed that and we are moving more towards non-pharmacological therapies for these patients. So uh, physical that. therapy or, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, be therapy. Yeah. yeah, just to try to deal with some of these uh, other issues like pain and fatigue. And we find that quite a, quite a useful strategy. Sounds like we've come full circle to the exercise being <laughs> away from opioids towards exercise and a holistic approach as we think about disease and comorbidities. Wonderful. Anthony, you uh, are last, obviously, attending the conference virtually. Um, so, was it a challenge for you, first of all, to? No, it was. Uh, we, I, you know, I found it quite a, uh, quite nice to be able to attend virtually. Um, and in fact, the uh, most of the sessions were very accessible. Of course, some of the sessions were not streamed live, but you could watch them. Uh, mm -hmm. 24 hours later. So I managed to catch up with the time zone. It, it actually works to my benefit. Right, right. You didn't have to watch in the middle of the night. Correct. <laughs> so what did you see the meeting that uh, was uh, exciting to you? So I was uh, very interested in looking at a uh, new modes of action uh, in XPA. So the IL-17AF dual inhibition uh, data was presented as a late extract, late breaking abstract, L14. And this is the 52-week uh, data on bimucusumab. And it's come on the back of two other presentations, uh, 411, which is the B-Mobile 2, which is uh, the AS data, and 544, which is B-Mobile 1, which is non-radiographic. Those two were the 24-week data, but this late-breaking extract was 52-week. And it was very interesting to see that the ASUS 40 was 60%, and the uh, SDAS uh, less than 2.1, the low disease activity, was also about 60%. In, in both groups. So this is uh, quite a, you know, good data that we have. And the um, inactive disease, uh, as does less than 1.3, was 25%. So clearly a very effective uh, new mode of action. 
And we've always been very concerned about the um, candidal infections with IL-17A. We didn't see it too much with IL-17A, but with dual inhibition, uh, what we wanted to know is after 52 weeks, were we seeing more candida infections? There was about 20% of uh, these patients who had fungal infections, but none of them required uh, stopping the treatment. In fact, from the whole study, there was only two in the uh, AS and two in the non-radiographic that had to stop treatment. So that's, again, uh, quite a nice uh, reassuring uh, safety signal that we're not seeing too many systemic or uh, candidal infections requiring uh, stopping of treatment. And so you said something that I think we all, as rheumatologists, we hear and we shudder, and that's fungal, right? So yeah. we don't want our patients, and we know this from the TNF inhibitors, if you're, depending on what side of the Mississippi yeah. you live in, or where in California or Arizona you are. So, but these are, they're, yes, candida, you know, classified under fungal infections, but they're different. And, and what we're not seeing, I think, reassuringly, is true fungal infections or systemic, even candidal infections. So that that does feel good. I think, you know, it's a, it is a new mode of action. 52 weeks is what we needed longer than primary endpoint data to really understand side effects better. But I still think we need more data. Um, we fortunately, I think for like safety and these kinds of AEs of special interest, you can look at other disease states to get a whiff of what might be coming. So there's lots of long-term data in psoriasis obviously, because psoriasis gets studied before anything else in spondyloarthritis. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think candidal infections, typically mild to moderate, not severe, um, are more common when you, you know, inhibit both A and F compared to F alone. But so far, I agree it's reassuring, and I think we need longer-term data. And, and what I loved about these, there were multiple bimikizumab trials, both in psoriatic arthritis and in axial spondyloarthritis, what was really remarkable is that actually in the axial spondyloarthritis trials, these were parallel trials in radiographic disease and non-radiographic disease, the response was the same, regardless whether it was non-radiographic or radiographic. And, and very interestingly, the numbers were small, but a portion of the patients were TNF and ad adequate responders, and they did well, better than in fact the same compared to the bio-naive population. Now, it wasn't powered to compare those, and so we have to be careful because the numbers are small, but it is really nice to see a group of patients that have been inadequate responders to another biologic do as well as a bio-naive population. But I think we need long, even longer-term data to, to know whether this is going to not just be as safe, but more efficacious. We don't have any head-to-head -head data, right? For bimikizumab, in psoriasis, we have head-to-head -head data, against another IL-17A inhibitor. Um, you would probably remember that from last year from NAJM, but whether that tr translates to arthritis outcomes, I think we still need more um, and always head to head if possible. Wonderful. Are you gonna be looking to using these MOAs, novel mechanisms? Who's itching to use a new drug? I mean, do you feel tapped out for axial spondyloarthritis? Maybe Eric, I'll ask you first. Yeah, not I, I think it's, um, you know, we've got a, a toolbox that keeps growing and I, I, I can't wait until we can run the perfect test that, that tells us which is the drug for each person. Because um, I, I think it's great that we're having all these options and it's great that we can continue to find uh, better drugs, but it's, it's getting hard to choose which one for which person. Yeah, precision medicine. <laughs> 
I know. As a, as a, obviously, I t speak a lot and t uh, teach about spondyloarthritis. It's been relatively easy because there's not that many choices. So mm -hmm. I, it would be nice to have more choices. But I think the the critical question, as you brought up, is not so much more choices, but which one to go for first for the individual patient. How about others? Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely yeah, looking forward to uh, to uh, putting some of my patients, especially now that we know that it works even with uh, TNF inadequate responders. Yeah. So they might be the ones we go for first uh, because they've tried uh, one or two biologics and it certainly looks promising from the data that we have to 52 weeks. Yep, definitely. We'll see where it lands in our algorithm and with our payers, right? At least in the yeah. US, it won't be up to us to decide. Sheila, will you have access to these kinds of MOAs? Okay, so I was going to, to say that not yet, but hopefully in the future, um, Right now, we still have limited. We're we're all um, only uh, av what's available here are the TNF inhibitors, the um, uh, but not all. And so, and we're we're really looking forward because um, we know that there are data that uh, I mean biologics work. But then here, um, another issue would be the the cost of these treatments to our patients. I mean, they may be available, but not all of not all our patients can afford right. them. So there are still lots of issues. But um, yes, we're we're really hoping that you know we could give better um, treatments for our patients and um, you know, so that they can have better quality of life, better treatment outcomes. Yeah, wonderful. Well, this has been a really fun discussion and session to talk about impactful abstracts from the ACR 2022 meeting. Thank you all for, of course, thinking about spondylarthritis this meeting and bringing your favorite abstracts to the session. Um, all right. And then next year, hopefully we'll be back. Any last comments or thoughts from anyone in the group? It was great to be back in person. It was good to see everyone. It was great to be back in person. <laughs> I I yeah. look forward to more in-person meetings. It's so it's so nourishing for sure. Uh, and then to Anthony and Sheila, I'm glad you were able to get, of course, science out of the meeting. We look forward to running into you in person. We hope to see you All in right. San Diego. Yes. We yeah, hope to definitely. see you in San Diego. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. All right, everyone, have a great Bye. rest of your day and uh, happy holidays, and we'll see you in 2023. This is Leanne Gensler for Room Now. Thanks, everyone. Bye.